listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 through to chapter 2 verse 10. Let's hear God's word. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, The fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is God's word. <clears throat> well, here at Trinity, we are continuing with a short series of sermons looking at the beginning of the New Testament letter called Ephesians. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a group of new churches in a city of the Roman Empire named Ephesus. These churches, they'd only recently been formed because many people in Ephesus had recently become Christians. Uh, the gospel, the, the central message of the Christian faith had been preached in Ephesus and many who heard this message 
responded to it by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They removed the things that they previously lived for from being the very centre of their lives. And they now live their lives for God, trusting in Christ and seeking to live according to his instruction. And in the opening of the letter, Paul wanted to press upon these young Christians something of what an amazing thing it is to be a Christian. He wanted them to begin to understand something of what was now a reality for them. So the beginning of chapter one, he outlined for them the ways in which every Christian has been blessed by God in Christ Jesus. Um, If you are a Christian, Paul makes clear, you have been adopted by God himself, brought into the very family of God. You've been given the family privileges and the family inheritance. You've been redeemed and forgiven, have been brought into God's very plan for the world. If you're a Christian, Paul urges you to see, you've been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is to say the blessing that the Father chose you to be blessed with was purchased for you by the Son and has been applied to you personally by the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God has done all of this for you. And what's more is that Paul then goes on to explain to the Ephesians what he prays for when he prays for them. He explains at the end of chapter 1 that we just read that he prays that they would be people who become increasingly aware of the hope and the inheritance that they've been given and that they would know the magnitude of the power which the risen Lord Jesus Christ possesses and exercises for their sake, the sake of his people, the church. Now, having outlined all of this for these young Christians in Ephesus, the question they might naturally have found themselves asking in response is something like, why me? Why has God done all of this for me? Have you ever found yourself asking that same question, why me, God? In our weaker moments, we might find ourselves asking that question in relation to something we'd rather not have happened to us. Why me, God? But in our better moments too, when we're struck by all God has done for us, we also find ourselves asking in relation to the many blessings we've been given, why me? And being able to give a clear answer to that question, the question, why why is it that a Christian has been so blessed by God? Being able to give a clear answer to that question is absolutely critical if we are to understand what it is to be a Christian, how we are to live as Christians. Now, even if you're on the outside looking in, as it were, wondering why it is that these other people have been so blessed by God, wondering how it is that you can come and experience the same thing, then there is nothing more important than understanding the Bible's answer to this question. Why has God done all of this for his people, for his church, for every single Christian? The answer that the Apostle Paul gives, the answer that the Bible gives revolves around one all-important word, the word grace. Paul repeats the same statement twice in the passage we're looking at today. In the second paragraph, chapter 2, verse 5, and then again in verse 8, he writes, by grace you have been saved. That's what this passage is all about. It's all about grace. Uh, That word might be one of the most familiar words to you, or it might be a word with which you feel barely acquainted. Either way, it's a word that expresses the reason why God ever blesses anybody. 
It's because of his grace. So I want us to look at three things this afternoon. The context of God's grace, the basis of God's grace, and the result of God's grace. First of all, then, the context of God's grace. If we want to understand the significance of God's grace, we need to understand the context for it. That is to say, we need to understand the background behind why we find ourselves in need of God's grace. This is precisely where the Apostle Paul begins in the first few verses of chapter 2. The opening words of chapter 2, the top of the second paragraph in our order of worship, they're supposed to hit you right between the eyes. Having spent chapter 1 focusing on all the ways that God has blessed us, the opening words of chapter 2 then highlight for us the dire situation we find ourselves in without God's blessing, without his grace. Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This, Paul is pointing out, is the context we find ourselves in and the context we remain in unless God shows us grace, unless God is gracious towards us. The reason we need God's grace is because without it, we are dead. Paul repeats the same statement in verse 5. We were dead in our trespasses. It doesn't get any more hopeless than death. If something is dead, then there is no potential for it to be anything other than dead. That might sound a little abstract, but that is part of the sadness that we each experience when we experience death around us. Part of my family last week were marking the birthday of a cousin of mine who passed away when she was just 10 years old. She was a year younger than me. And I remember going as an 11-year-old boy to my mum one night shortly after my cousin Megan had passed away. Uh, And I remember being incredibly upset. And when my mum asked me what exactly I was upset about, I remember expressing to her that I felt incredibly sad because the realisation I'd never see Megan again. We didn't see each other very regularly. But what death did was take away the potential of any future meeting. It's part of the painful sadness we experience when we experience death around us. It doesn't do us any good to ignore it. And Paul here in Ephesians 2 is speaking of death in a similar sense. When he tells us that unless God shows us grace, we are dead, he is making a statement about the potential we possess as human beings. Or rather, he's making a statement about the lack of potential we possess as human beings. Just as dead people do not possess the potential for life, we do not possess the potential for spiritual life. Because unless God shows us grace, we are dead. That is to say, when it comes to all of these blessings that Paul has been outlining for us, adoption into God's family, family privileges and inheritance, redemption, forgiveness, so on, We do not possess within ourselves the potential to somehow attain these things for ourselves any more than a dead person has the potential to attain life. Spiritually, unless God graciously gives us these things, we remain without them. And so we remain spiritually dead. 
It's clear that Paul is talking about death in a spiritual sense here because he goes on to talk about how we lived our lives whilst we were, in fact, dead. He piles up damning clause after damning clause in verses 2 and 3 to highlight for us just how dead we are apart from God's grace. Uh, We were dead in trespasses and sins, he writes, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now at work, in sons of disobedience, that's us, among whom we all once lived in the following way, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, uh, we could spend an entire sermon and more considering each of these clauses, but we're not going to do that. We do, though, need to make sure that we catch Paul's purpose in piling all of these clauses up. And his purpose is to get us to see that without God's grace, we are by nature in a dire and hopeless situation. We're dead. In fact, all that Paul is doing in verses 2 and 3 is explaining for us what it means to be sinful, what it is to be a sinner in biblical terms. Uh, We tend to think that to be sinful is merely to be not quite perfect. And if we've been around church, we know that to be not quite perfect is not good enough for God who demands perfection in all things because he is perfect. And so we can begin to think that the way God shows us grace is he simply overlooks our minor imperfections and blesses us in spite of them. But at the beginning of Ephesians 2, Paul wants us to see that to be sinful is far more extensive and far more serious than that. In the first place, to be sinful is to be dead, a death that has been caused by trespasses and sins, we're told in verse 1. The word trespasses refers more to violating or breaking God's law, whereas the word sin here refers more to rebellion against God. Uh, The consequences of of breaking God's law and rebelling against the God to whom we owe our lives, understandably, is death. Yet Paul says, we walked in these things. That is to say, our lives were characterised by these things, by rebellion and law-breaking. When we think of rebellion and law-breaking, we tend to think, of only those in our society who commit the most serious offences. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. Because he's pressing home the point that we all lived in this way. He says that directly in verse 3. We all once lived in this way. No exception. Points it out in verse 5 as well when he includes himself in the category of people who were dead. We were dead in our trespasses, he says. And that's significant because... Paul grew up in the community of God's people. He grew up in the church as it was then. It's part of the nation of Israel. In fact, he tells us elsewhere that he was among the most zealous of religious people. He was one of the most well-educated people on the entire earth when it came to the scriptures, the Bible. But even so, his problem was the same as our problem, which is the problem of the whole human race. He was dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, the real problem was that because he was dead in his trespasses and sins, he was, just as we are, by nature a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
Our problem, the reason we need God's grace, is not our lack of familiarity with the Christian faith. It's not our lack of knowledge when it comes to the teaching of the Bible. Our problem is not found in the fact that we have lived a not quite perfect life. Our problem, Paul highlights, is our very nature. By that he means who we are naturally, the people we are born as. We're born as sinful people. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. Our prayer of confession earlier in the service, it was taken from Psalm 51, in which David prays to God, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's acknowledging the very same point Paul is making in Ephesians 2. His problem is his very nature. If you have children or if you spent time around children or if you are or remember being a child, you know that a child does not need to be taught to do the wrong thing. Why is it that a child disobeys his parents or rebels against the good upbringing that she's had? It's not first and foremost because of outside influences and it's not fundamentally because of bad decisions the child makes. It's because of their nature. Which helps us to see that as human beings, we do not start off in life in some kind of neutral position towards God. We do not start off in a position from which it's possible for us to fall into a state of death in trespasses and sins. But it's also possible for us to remain in some kind of neutral state or or even possible for us to climb our way into God's good books. we, We don't begin life in a neutral starting point. Because we are all, by nature, children of wrath, Paul says. Our very nature is one that is dead in trespasses and sins. And the reason we then commit trespasses and sins is because we simply then act consistently with our nature. And the result of this is that by nature, we in ourselves, in the condition that we were born in, are deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath being his perfectly just, his perfectly settled, his perfectly balanced anger towards us in response to our law-breaking and our rebellious nature, which, if nothing changes, will result in us facing the terror of his judgment. Well, this all sounds pretty dark for a passage that's all about grace, you might think true but we'll only begin to understand grace when we see it against this background against this context just as in a jeweler's shop you see the true beauty of a diamond ring only when it's set in front of a dark velvet backdrop this is this is the context that the dark backdrop of god's grace And before we move on, it's worth remembering that Paul is writing to Christians here. He wants Christians to know the dire situation they were in before God showed them grace. It is possible that the beginning of Ephesians 2 just seems terribly old hat to you. It can all seem so obvious, so familiar to you. But Paul wants us Christians to think about this subject again, to dwell on who we are by nature who we were before God was gracious to us. Do you 
recognise the seriousness of your desire to break God's law and to live according to your own, to rebel against the God who made you? Do you, Christian, recognise the extent of how sinful you are by nature? Just, just think about it. Think about that person who you feel is your biggest critic. The person who is under no illusion that you're perfect. Some, even a lot of their criticism, might be unjust. Well, it's often the case that criticism has at least a grain of truth to it. You might feel aggrieved by their criticism of you. But the fact of the matter is that you are far worse than even the perception of your biggest critic. For some of you, you are your own biggest critic. You struggle with self-esteem, perhaps even with self-loathing at times. Yet even you don't know the half of it. You're far worse than you ever imagined. It's the same for all of us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's the context of God's grace. This is the seriously bleak situation we each naturally find ourselves in, which begs the question, how could God ever show us grace? Secondly then, we need to look at the basis for God's grace, the basis for God's grace. Twice, Paul states to these young Christians, in verse 5 and verse 8, that it is by grace you have been saved. It is difficult to comprehensively define what grace is. Sometimes it's better to avoid simplistic definitions. But grace here communicates the idea of favour that is undeserved. The reason that these young Christians in Ephesus had been saved and had been granted all of the blessings that Paul's already outlined is because God had shown them favour which they did not deserve, which they did not earn. Makes that clear, Paul makes that clear in verse 8 where he writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That grace is undeserved favour, it's a gift. It's simply given rather than something that can be earned. God's grace, his gift to us, is the gift of salvation, the gift of being saved. By grace you have been saved, he writes, Paul writes. This salvation which we receive as a gift encompasses all that Paul's already outlined, adoption into God's family, the family privileges and inheritance, redemption, forgiveness, all of which comes to us in Christ and is guaranteed for us by the Holy Spirit. But the summary of this salvation, which we receive as a gift, is explained in verse 5 and 6, either side of Paul's first statement that it is by grace we have been saved. He writes at the end of verse 5 that God made us alive together with Christ. And at the beginning of verse 6, he goes on to say that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's gift to us is that he makes us, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, he makes us alive together with Christ. And he raises up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Again, we could spend 
an entire series of sermons unpacking the meaning behind these words. But what we need to see as being so remarkable here is that Paul is outlining that the Christian, the Christian has experienced what Christ has experienced. The Christian has been on the same journey that Christ has been on. Because at the end of chapter 1, the first paragraph in our reading, Paul stated each of these things about Christ. In chapter 1, verse 20, he outlined that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The implication being that he made him alive. Yet in chapter 2, he explains that the same has happened for us, for the Christian. We have been made alive together with him, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This is the gift that God gives us by grace. And the remarkable thing about what Paul is explaining here is that it shows us that the Christian is so closely connected to Christ, so joined to him, so united to him by grace through faith, that Christ's experience is our experience. Now just try and take that in. His perfect life was our perfect life. His death was our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His exaltation, our exaltation. He himself is God's gift to us. And all that he has accomplished is ours as a result. So much so that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins and who deserve God's wrath are now alive together with Christ. At which point we ought to be asking the question once again, why me? Not in relation to God's wrath, we understand that, but in relation to God's gift of grace, why would God grant me this gift? It should be clear by now that the answer cannot be because of anything in you. Even your response to the message of God's gift, the response of faith, it's not something you've brought to the table. A person is not a Christian because they possess within themselves a greater capacity for faith than the person next to them who's not a Christian. Paul makes this absolutely clear again in verse 8. Both the grace you've received and the faith by which you've received it, neither are your own doing. God gifted this grace to you and he gifted you the faith by which you receive it. So the answer cannot be found within ourselves. And so the question then still remains, why me? Why has God granted me this gift? Why has God blessed me in this way? Why has God made me alive together with Christ? And the answer is found at the beginning of verse 4. Simply because God is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loves us. You know how it is when you come across an inquisitive child and they ask you an initial question, but then they probe your every answer with the question, why? Well, why, Christian, have you been given this great gift? Because God graciously gave it to me. 
Why did God graciously give it to you when by nature you deserve only his wrath? Because he is rich in mercy. But why did he make you the object of his mercy? Because he loves you. At which point the line of questioning has reached its end. And the answer isn't one to be inquired into anymore, but it's one to be rested upon. It's one to accept as the very foundation of your inquiry. Why does God love me? Because he does. And all that he has done, he has done because he loves me. His mercy, his grace... All of the ways he has blessed me in Christ because he loves me. And there is a world of comfort and confidence to be found here. When we get to the bottom here of Paul's line of inquiry. You are a Christian, not because of anything you've done. And therefore not because of anything that you can undo. But you are a Christian because of the love of God. And his love is not a love that ebbs and flows. It's not inconsistent. His love is steadfast and faithful. All of which is to say that you and the gift of salvation you've received is entirely secure because of his love. His love is the basis for his grace. And if anything else was the basis for his grace, we would... Be searching in vain for comfort and confidence when we realise more of the reality of how sinful we are by nature. But because the basis of his grace is his love, we rest assured that we have indeed been saved by grace because he has been merciful to us, because he loves us. Realising... The context of God's grace and the basis of God's grace ought to bring us naturally also to realise, thirdly, finally, briefly, the result of God's grace. What difference should it make to our lives if God has shown us grace in this way? Paul highlights two things. The first is that there's no place for boasting in the life of the Christian. It says in verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if we followed his argument to this point, we realise this is simply the inevitable conclusion, the inevitable result. How could we possibly boast? How could we possibly view ourselves as Christians as superior to anybody else If the reason we are a Christian is not down to anything in us, but it's entirely down to God's grace. How could you possibly swagger around as though there is even a single human being on earth who is inferior to you? If you know what you're deserving of by nature. Christians then should be the most humble people in the world. Christians shouldn't be people who are on their toes, ready to defend and assert themselves. But people on their knees, ready to humble themselves. We shouldn't be quick to try and raise our reputation in the eyes of others, but to lower ourselves. 
And when somebody criticizes us, whether their criticism is entirely fair or not, we can smile at their criticism and think to ourselves, if you knew what I was really like, you could say far worse about me. Humility. No boasting. The second result of God's grace is that when we experience it, it's not only our attitude that changes, but what we do is impacted as well. Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice where Paul chooses to highlight our good works here. He waits until the very end of his argument. He wants us to be crystal clear that our works, what we do, do not contribute to us becoming Christians. We can't work our way into God's favour. But he also wants us to understand that there is a place for good works in the Christian life. Good works do not contribute to us becoming Christians, but they are a result of us becoming Christians. To put it clearly, once you become a Christian, you ought then to do good to others. That is to say, it ought to do others good to spend time with you, to be around you. The fact that you're a Christian ought to benefit your family, your classmates, your colleagues, your neighbours. It's the natural overflow when we realise the context of God's grace and when we're assured of the basis for God's grace. Which does mean that when we aren't benefiting others in the way that we ought, it's quite likely that we've lost sight of either the context of God's grace or the basis for God's grace. It's often the case that we're not a blessing to those around us because we've lost sight of who we are by nature. We've slipped into thinking that we're in some way superior to others. And so we find ourselves being annoyed and irritated by others rather than being compassionate and sympathetic towards them as people who share the same nature as us. And sometimes we're not as beneficial to others as we ought to be because we've lost sight of the basis of God's grace. Instead of being assured of God's love for us and understanding that our security is ultimately found in the fact that he loves us, we feel insecure about ourselves and one of the effects of feeling insecure is that we constantly look to others to give us that sense of security and so instead of viewing other people as people we can do good to and benefit we look to them as people from whom we need affirmation or at the very least people from whom we need to avoid condemnation so that we don't feel even more insecure Either way, we are then not looking to do good to others, but we're consumed with ourselves instead. One of the effects of God's grace is that it gets us out of ourselves. As we recognise more of the context of God's grace, as we are more and more assured of the basis of God's grace, we live humbly and we are looking to do good to others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the amazing truth of these verses that we've been thinking about, that whilst we were dead in trespasses and sins, you 
made us alive together with Christ. You've raised us and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Lord, we thank you that you've done all this by grace. We thank you that you've done all of this because you love us. And we ask that we would take this to heart, that we would allow it to sink deeply into our very being so that we might be people who live humble lives seeking to do good to others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.